Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 308 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Canadian Fortitude, an interview with Lexi Czar. My name is Emma Pakoulis. And I'm Matt Sabatello. And I think this is a really exciting interview. I think Lexi is a really awesome girl who has been through the ringer in her Lyme journey from seeing so many doctors and experiencing so many unknown illnesses to trying so many regular medicines to alternative medicines from stem cells to microdosing. I think she has a real important story to tell. That being said, I'm very excited to introduce Lexi Zahar. All right. Hi, Lexi. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Well, welcome to Tick Bootcamp. Are you excited? Excited, nervous. (laughs) I understand. So you got sick at seven, correct? Yeah, it was around seven years old where I started to develop abnormal symptoms and like prolonged headaches and pain for a seven-year-old that was kind of questionable. Yeah. Do you remember... Do you remember a time where you weren't feeling headaches and pain? Sure. Yeah, I don't really. Like when you think of your childhood, you kind of are like, oh, yeah, you know, I was like outdoors all the time and had a lot of fun. But for as long as I can remember, I kind of felt a bit off or was a bit of a rundown child that needed more sleep than my siblings and stuff. Really? Yeah. How many siblings do you have? I have one brother and one sister, both older. Okay. So you felt like they had more energy than you? Oh, yeah. I think I got labeled as the lazy kid for a long time, but I'm just really? like, I need so much sleep. <laughs> like, like back to elementary school. Yeah. Kid. Yeah. For as long as I can remember, I was a bit of a, a sleepy, sleepy kid. What about friends? Did that affect your social life in elementary school and school and everything like itself? You... Not that I'm aware of. I mean, as much as I needed a lot of sleep and was tired a lot, I still was super ambitious and outgoing and very social. You know, I lived outdoors playing sports all my life, hiking, you know, fishing. We we're a very, very outgoing, busy family. And I kind of did my best to keep up with all the activities. I guess I just noticed that I was run down or complaining of like stomach aches or headaches or pain a lot more than my siblings or my friends, but I still, I still did everything for the most part. Okay. I've got so many questions. Where was your pain, first of all? (laughs) Pardon me? (laughs) Where was your pain? Like in your body? Yeah, yeah, I felt like I went through flu like symptoms quite often, randomly, Uh, not. Yeah, there was kind of a few pieces, there's the flu like symptoms, and then I would get these really, really, really bad stomach aches that took a few years to be diagnosed as abdominal migraines, I guess migraines in children typically present as stomach aches when migraines run in your family so that later in life I started developing headache migraines and got less of the stomach migraines so there was kind of like this like all over body pain and then these isolated events of like extreme debilitating pain for 
maybe like 24 hours, like short increments that I spent a lot of time at the hospital, like wondering what was going on. Would you say that was how your childhood really more went? Like wondering what was going on? (laughs) That would be a really, really good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And my adulthood. Okay. Let's do this. Um, Were your friends understanding as kids? Honestly, it was something I didn't really talk about or deal with with my friends being so young until maybe I was like 16 or so in high school when other problems started manifesting. But as a child, I kind of just talked about it with my mom or my parents here and there or complained a little bit. For the most part, I very strong willed so it was just like mind over matter all the time and do your best to keep up and just deal with the fallout later which again I've tried to be more present and aware of my body as an adult now but still there's times where it's like power through and like achieve and finish the thing and deal with the fallout later (laughs) did you grow up in a wooded area where were ticks a like a term in your vocabulary? The short answer would be no. Um, I know that they're in the area now, but growing up, it wasn't something that we talked about a ton. I might have heard someone mention it in passing, but like ticks or Lyme disease were not something we were educated on, really. My parents had experience with being bit in the past but nobody was ill you know and as kids they were just it was kind of maybe a normal um thing for around the valley here but I definitely like grew up right at the base of a mountain and like was horseback riding tons through the bush we dirt biked and quadded and hiked fished camped huckleberry picking so we were literally in the bush like every weekend. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It was inevitable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. So before you got diagnosed with Lyme, you got diagnosed with a bunch of things, right? Mono. Before yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Lots, lots of like irritable bowel syndrome, mono, the abdominal migraines, restless leg syndrome. Yeah, anxiety, depression. What age would you say you started going to the doctor and stuff and seeking out answers? That would have been around seven, eight when I first started having quite a bit of symptoms because they weren't going away. So I started with a pediatrician quite quite young and whether it was hormone related or just how our immune systems change so much, but it's just been this wave my whole life of periods of improvement and periods of lows and not really knowing all the time why, but I definitely have ebbed and flowed in my health journey along, along the way. Um, so when you were like, let's say 14, were there any like diagnoses that you had like that you felt semi-validated you or you were still like really lost at that? Like what's still going on? 
I think when I was 14, I probably was more worried about what I was going to wear to school and who would like me for it, <laughs> to be honest. And it was just, it, yeah, and it was just kind of these freak accident, like stomach aches or, you know, the fatigue that came up that was, it was there, but it was very much secondary around 14. Yeah, like I went through a strong phase when I was in that seven, eight, nine and was on medication for the abdominal migraines quite young so we thought that that maybe helped and then when I was 14 maybe there was less symptoms and then when I was about 16 again it became more of the forefront you know so around 14 it was it was a little bit in the background per se (laughs) okay so what happened at 16 what what was the forefront Yeah, so when I was 16, I was in Kitimat visiting my boyfriend at the time, and I was feeling, it was springtime, and I was feeling a bit like I was getting a cold, and I was flying back to my hometown of Creston, BC, and on the plane, I developed flu-like symptoms, felt quite ill, was very happy to be like going home at that point, right? Not feeling well, flying alone. And I had a lot of pressure in my ear. And what happened actually, I didn't find out till a couple of days later, but I burst my eardrum on that flight. Oh my God. So I had some sort of infection virus maybe Lyme disease, I'm not sure, right? But it was causing this inflammation and fluid behind my ear and it it burst a hole in my eardrum over that flight. And yeah, it was one of the most painful things. I'm sure. How long was the flight, first of all? Um, I actually don't know. It might be about an hour. Like it's a short flight, yeah. What a accident that's awful yeah oh my god that was does is did it heal I've had surgery on it and I still am very prone to ear aches and have to be careful about getting water in it but it's it's as good as it can be I guess you must have been petrified (laughs) yeah I remember just laying in bed after being like my ear hurts so bad and finally we went to the hospital and they were like what's your pain and I remember that was probably the first time in my life where I'm like could barely speak from pain I'm like nine like yeah I can't I can't talk so I think it's really bad (laughs) Jesus so that was a virus yeah, I'm not I'm not quite sure what happened there, but I did end up testing positive for mono later. So whether I contracted mono then or a few weeks later, I can't quite remember, but no, that's right. I already had I had already had mono for a while because I was having issues with my spleen um, prior to. So sorry, the mono was before the the eardrum burst okay yeah okay and mono is one of those weird things for me that yes I was feeling a bit off but me having mono I wasn't much more tired than my day-to-day life like I was actually quite surprised 
when I tested positive for mono because I was more complaining about like this pain in my rib cage than I was like fatigue or cold symptoms. I just, and they had said like, okay, your spleen's really swollen. You have to be really careful playing volleyball and other sports and you should rest and like recover. And I was like, well, I don't feel that much different than normal. So I think that that was a big sign for me looking back now that I like the state of unwellness that I was operating under was quite significant. Yeah. So you were 16 when your spleen was that swollen. Yeah. And that was all the same time. The, the, the eardrum popping mono. Yeah. So what was, you you wanted, what made you go to the doctor, the the pain in the spleen? Yeah. The pain pain in the spleen. And I think I had like a runny nose for like months. But like, again, it wasn't super abnormal. It was just like, maybe we should see what's going on. And they're like, oh, you have mono. And I was like, oh, well, like, can I still do all my sports and stuff? And that's when they said, like, you need to be really careful, like diving in volleyball and stuff with your spleen, you know, like you can rupture, rupture it. And I was like, oh, okay. Wow. Why you, you had a swollen spleen? That's a, that's hard, swollen spleen. Yeah, that's just a symptom of mono, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then when the eardrum burst and I went through all that, I was very run down. And that was like, I think I spent about a month in and out of the hospital and ended up getting severe flu-like symptoms like vomiting and being unable to eat. So I ended up having to go take a few weeks off school and get IV drip in the hospital because I couldn't like keep anything down. And it was a rough couple of months after that. And again, like nothing, no new diagnoses or anything came from that after the mono and the burst eardrum, but they were just like, oh, you must just have the flu or something. So for months they're treating mono and operating under mono, but it's just the same. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you wind up getting better from that period or did you get better? Is that what we're. Yeah. It just felt like a very slow process. I remember going back to school and trying to catch up and it took a few months and maybe by the summer, like this, that'll happen in the spring. And probably like late summer where I started to feel a little bit better but to be honest I don't know if I ever quite fully recovered because I spent I worked or so I went to school for one more semester and then graduated early and to work and prep for college and and college was just another host of symptoms that was allotted to being stressed and partying and you know, living on your own, but I don't know if I ever fully recovered from the the illness that I got at 16. So you got sick at 16 and then you got seriously sick at 16. And then yeah. there was a tiny little gap period before you went away to, before you went to school. Yeah. Before I went to college and I felt like a bit better, but not like a rock star by any means. <laughs> How were you feeling when you started college?
That's a good question. Again, I just like I worked two jobs leading up to college and was so busy and I was tired, but everything was allotted to just like working really hard and, you know, being stressed and, you know, having a social life and being an athlete and going into college, I joined the fastball team and, you know, was right into competitive sports and was 18 in Calgary, right? It's legal drinking age. So you just, I was run down and tired, but I just, Oh yeah. And I had my tonsils out like two weeks before I started college. So I'm like run down and tired and living off like jello and pudding for the first month of college. So I don't know. I had better days, but it was kind of just, just normal for me to feel run down, you know, and just blame it on everything around me instead of like questioning why do I feel like run down all the time and is this greater than my circumstance yeah you've got your tonsils out (laughs) yes was that due to illness or other reasons yeah I think because of this like lingering cold dermano thing that I had it was this like continuous unwellness that they thought removing my tonsils would help but I've since learned that you know there's a reason if your tonsils are inflamed all the time and it probably is a chronic infection that your body is trying to help you with and removing them in fact doesn't eliminate the infection right like now you've just lost an indicator of what what your body's trying to tell you right yeah yeah Breath out. <laughs> and when you don't know better you don't know better right like everything's like an earnest effort it's, it's tough but yeah Emma, can I, i'm gonna jump in real quick Emma. i'm sorry and lexi because yeah. this is what i do and i tell everybody i'm not gonna jump in until later and i jump in but this is a fun discussion right so i have to yeah. ask lexi because this is really interesting with the tonsil part of it were you having like what were your symptoms that led you to have your tonsils out were you having sore throats was there inflammation or swelling in your throat were you having issues swallowing because we have a lot of people on this podcast who tell us they have Lyme symptoms you know with swallowing sore throats constantly throat infections inflammation and it's always misidentified as something else so did you share any of those symptoms or or is was it something else that led to your tonsil removal I think it was a lot of sore throats and I do believe there was some connection maybe with the ear draining after the eardrum burst I'm not quite sure to be honest, I don't remember, but I do remember just the cold like symptoms being continuous. So it was probably like sore throat and just general irritation, like they were inflamed often. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is a fellow Limey. I also got my tonsils out. So this is interesting. Oh, um, really? Yes, but it's along the same lines but totally different you know yeah yeah it's interesting so (laughs) you were wait so you got your tonsils out you said and then you went to school like two weeks later oh yeah (laughs) like that's what I said I just am like a new college like living on my own living off pudding and like just like okay I'm starting college and I'm starting 
fastball like right into training season I think I yeah I took like the first week off and then I started training with just fresh tonsils out like yeah I was on a liquid diet I think for about a month it was a really slow healing process for me too they didn't heal that like I didn't heal from the surgery as quick as I should have how long do you take to heal I think it was about after Thanksgiving and I had them done at the end of August before school. So Thanksgiving in Canada is like mid-October. So it took a good two months to fully, fully heal. Yeah. And that was kind of a theme, I think, with me and my life is just being a bit slower to heal, which I understand now if your body's fighting a chronic infection or a long-term problem that you just don't have like the healing power to, to, to heal quickly. Like your energy is so tied up in other places. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you start college, you just got your tonsils out. You just you picked mono or picking mono. Do you still have mono at this point in your mind or is it past you? I think it's, it was past me at this point. It was just like, okay, now that we got the tonsils out, like whatever was causing that, like we're, we're problem solving, right? In Western medicine, if something causes a problem and we can remove it, we remove it, even if we don't know why, right? (laughs) Just like, okay, everything will be great now that I have my tonsils out. Once I recover and heal from this, you know, I'll, I'll be fine, you know, kind of it's always like after this I'll be healthy after this I'll be healthy and then you're 28 years old and you're like will I ever be healthy <laughs> we're waiting yeah so okay so on your liquid diet how are how are classes going or how is freshman year your first year of college yeah, it seemed honestly the course load wasn't too bad. I was a pretty strong academic student going in and the classes, the course load seemed fine. I was playing ball and kind of staying staying active and not too much in the party scene. And then I dislocated my shoulder diving back to first base one night at like I think it was an end of October game and I went to school in Alberta so it was snowing it was cold things were tight and I dove back to the base and I just overshot a little bit and when I hit my elbow I popped my shoulder out and again it was just a very slow healing process and I'm in college and my friends are like, well, now that you don't have practice all the time and like all these ball commitments, like come out and drink with us. And I'm like, okay, that sounds fun, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I started partying a bit, still doing my physio and stuff, but slow healing. And again, just kind of allotted the unwellness to partying and college stress. But there was one day I was in a Pilates class and like the whole room started spinning. My ears were ringing and I just had this incredible head pain and it just came on within about 10 minutes and I'm trying to get through the class. And finally I, I got up, like 
I'm not I'm not a quitter like if I'm usually like committed into a class or something like I'm there and it took a lot for me to be like I don't even know if I'm going to be able to make it back to my room at this point so I talked to the instructor and he was like oh you know the weather's changing you probably have a migraine so that was when I experienced my first headache migraine which became a pretty common thing for the next year of college with living in a a city with big weather changes the Chinooks of Calgary are are pretty common to give um give migraines and yeah so I got through college but it was a lot of migraines a lot of partying and a lot of mystery sickness still yeah yeah so so how late in college or how early in college did you start getting the migraines a few months a few months in yeah probably by November I think was the first one okay yeah and how like frequent were they I probably had one or two a month depending on the weather changes and with migraines sometimes you do or I experience I know everyone's a bit different but for me sometimes the flu-like symptoms are associated like the neck aches and the hot and cold and the nausea and stuff so sometimes I wasn't sure being so new to it all if I was having the flu or if I was having a migraine and then I think sometimes I had like colds and migraines combined right so I did I do remember going to the campus doctor quite a few times and and they just didn't really have much to offer to help you know they're just like oh people get colds and flus all the time and you're in college and stressed and I'm like okay well I guess that's all it is and I just wait them out so then you graduate and you're still experiencing the migraines and the colds and the flus and then what happens yeah pardon me in life what happens in life you work you yeah I graduated with my certificate in nutrition but I ended up working for my friend's safety company or my friend's friend's safety company so I ended up working on industrial job sites for like six to eight weeks at a time just doing confined space attending and it was just kind of a way in a short amount of time to make money for you know the next year of college which ultimately I decided not to go back to college and just stayed working till that winter when I went to Thailand, Indonesia and Australia. Yeah, it was super fun, but I also like in that time leading up to I was on and off very sick again and struggling and I remember my partner's mom at the time like in the fall before we left she was like are you sure you can go like you don't look well and I'm like I don't feel well but like the doctors just say I'm having anxiety and maybe some depression and I didn't 
take the medication because it didn't really resonate with me, but I also didn't have other answers. So I just continued on with life, right? Like you do. Yeah. 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 Can I jump in and real quick too? Again, Lexi, I'm sorry, because you mentioned no, that it, the, it didn't resonate with you that you needed depression and anxiety medication, but there was no other answer. So you went on with life. In the back of your mind, did you did you believe that there was something else or did you believe that you were maybe depressed and trying to just fight that depression and, and overcome it on your own? So, you know, where was your head at? You know, did you really accept it was a mental health issue and try to beat it on your own without medication? Or were you thinking they're wrong, but they don't know what it is and I just have to keep going on with my life? I think it was a bit of both, to be honest. I was very, very confused at that point. And I was experiencing perhaps some anxiety and depression, but in my heart, I felt like it was because I felt so unwell all the time. So the medication didn't quite resonate because I felt like it was a symptom of something else. And just because I didn't know what that something else was, didn't mean I was prepared to take the medication if that makes sense it does and i think this is an important topic because personally i went through this with various doctors including an er doctor who told me i'd end up in the psych ward if i didn't just calm down and take a vacation I said, I mean, verbatim you're gonna end up in the psych ward unless you calm down and you can't help but think is it really in my head is it really just depression and anxiety and if it is i want to feel better so i'll look at all options but in my case, it prevented me from expediting a, you know, a, a solution or finding the root cause, which was Lyme disease, right? So I guess what I'm asking you, Lexi, in your situation, do you believe all these misdiagnoses of depression and anxiety caused you to doubt yourself and prevented you from being as aggressive as possible to seek help from other doctors? Absolutely. So you were being gaslit by these doctors? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm done. I'm, I'm stepping on Emma's toes again. And I apologize. Everybody knows who listens to this podcast. I can't shut up. So I digress again. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm happy that you brought that up for sure. Yeah. So huge. The amount of doctors you see. It's inappropriate that you see so many doctors and you're how old at this point, you know, 19, 20, 21. Mm, yeah. And you're, You've had abdominal migraines, regular migraines, your tonsils out, a swollen spleen, mono for how long? And mm. you're just depressed. No, I'm depressed because no one's helping me. It's yeah. huge. So yeah. sorry to but No, that's okay. And and yeah, it's just that's why I said it was a very confusing time for sure. And you you are young and you're kind of like I grew up in a very traditional household in like town, small town where you listen to the doctors and you listen to the news and you listen to the teachers and, and they are the authority figures and they are your lighthouse. So when they give you something that doesn't resonate or doesn't feel good in your body, you almost get this sense of guilt or like, I'm a bad person for not taking this med or following this plan but at this point you know I'm not quite a, a young kid anymore and maybe I'm not a full-grown woman but I was present enough at that point in my life to just feel 
almost like the rejection in my body that was like, no, this isn't quite, quite right. But I didn't know what was right either. That's the part where I said, it's just like, okay, well, if I'm not anxious or depressed, I just need to move on with my life and live like a healthy person because I must be one if we don't yeah. know what's going on, right? This is it then. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, we're going on the trip and we're doing the things because apparently I'm, I only have mental health problems. So exactly. physically I should be able to do that. <laughs> so how did you feel when you went on the trip? What were you physically feeling at that point? I or neurologically? Yeah, I was exhausted and again it just keeps coming to using excuses of everything in your life I'm like oh I'm jet lagged or oh it's the Thai food or you know it's the the weather here or the you know you just you use everything around you as an excuse but really I'm I'm spending almost eight weeks on the beach not doing a whole lot and sleeping a lot and healing and resting and doing yoga and kickboxing and eating good food I should be feeling should be feeling pretty well and rested yeah. by now. Well done. Yeah. Okay, so when you got back from the trip, were there any like red flags that were not yet? Yeah. So before we got back, I we flew to. Wait, let me get this right. While we were on vacation. We're in Indonesia and it was rainy season. I didn't realize that even though Indonesia is so close to Thailand, that they're on a completely different weather system. Mm -hmm. So in Indonesia, it was the rainy season. And that means bugs are very, very, very prominent. And they were fog for mosquitoes and stuff. And I ended up leaving Indonesia in the middle of the night because my room was infested with termites and <laughs> yeah it was like that moment where you see one crawling and you're like oh look at that and then your eyes focus and you just see that they're everywhere and it <laughs> yeah and uh I was sitting in bed kind of just being like I don't know what to do I'm so like uncomfortable and I'm looking at flights to like go back to Thailand and there's a $50 seat sale to Australia and it leaves in like four hours. So I'm like, pack up my like little termite suitcase that's like trying to like shake it off, <laughs> hoping I'm not taking too many with me and like off to the airport I go because <laughs> there's no way I was sleeping. If you can't sleep. <laughs> so again I'm on this flight and I start feeling sick I'm on a flight again I start feeling very sick very flu-like and by the time I got to Australia I can barely like carry myself around so I ended up getting a hotel um just central and trying to rest and I think I was sick for about 10 days I got the hotel and like I couldn't walk I couldn't go to the bathroom I couldn't drink I couldn't eat like I had a, a stomach and a headache and a full body like migraine 
I was so weak. It was one of the most painful, like scary times in my life and being so far from home and just not even having the strength to go to a hospital or not having the mental clarity to call a doctor. So I basically just almost died in this hotel room and I was never the same after that. And I came home from the trip. Like I, I slowly improved a little bit. It took a few weeks, but improved enough and made it home. But when I got home, I was exceptionally run down and still dealing with the aftermath of whatever this was. And I told all the doctors, like all the travel history I had just been through what happened. And again, it was just like, I think, you know, you just, you're young and you don't know what you're doing with your life. Like you're anxious and you're depressed. And I kept going into these walk-in clinics and being like, I'm like really sick and this isn't like me. I'm super outgoing. And like, even before when I had the fatigue and symptoms, you know, I was still pretty like bubbly and outgoing. But after this trip, I'm like, I'm really, really severely struggling. And I couldn't work at that point because I could barely, you know, take care of myself and they didn't ever solve it. It wasn't until a couple years ago, it was seven years later, I found out that I actually had contracted dengue fever and I'm exceptionally lucky to have lived through that without treatment because it's like having West Nile basically. So was that from the termites or mosquitoes? I'm assuming the mosquitoes, because I didn't have like a termite bite or anything, but there was a lot of fogging and mosquitoes going around. Yeah, but I don't really know. I can't actually say. Wow. So how long were you fighting off the dengue? Am I saying that right, dengue? Dengue, yeah, I think so. I So I didn't even know that I had it, right? I just... I found that out a few years ago when my health problems progressed and I finally got in with a different type of infectious disease doctor who was actually a younger fellow who was like, nobody has ever tested you for these things. And I'm like, no. So seven years later he did it and, you know, he can see that it was a past infection, right? It's not active, but these viral infections, as I'm sure you know, they don't really ever go away because they're intracellular. So you, you carry them for a long time. And yeah, I think it was after that, where again, my health ebbed and flowed for a few years, but I definitely struggled for about a year after the traveling and the dengue fever quite severely. Like I, I felt very lost from from myself and who I was. Lexi, on the note of the the viruses, right? And the intracellular part of your comment there, I can't help but wonder because you had had mono, which means now you have the Epstein-Barr virus in you for the rest of your life. You now have dengue fever, which is something that doesn't go away, right? It's an intracellular Mm -hmm. pathogen that stays with you. And if you're sick, if your immune system gets compromised, if if you have a traumatic event, these things will come out and make you really sick. And you were always an unhealthy individual where any of your doctors, especially the young infectious disease doctor, were saying, hey, maybe these things you've built up throughout your lifetime, these viruses, other bacteria like wine potentially could be contributing to your overall health 
problems or was it never put together that you had all these things throughout your life and they could be contributing to your health? Can you ask me that last question again? Sure. I know <laughs> I, I speak so fast. I'm sorry in advance. I told you that these New, our New York accents are really hard to follow sometimes. So I apologize. So the question is, you know, you obviously know, Lexi, that Epstein-Barr being connected to mono is something you live with the rest of your life. And when you're compromised, it will come out and make you even sicker or more sick, mm -hmm. right? You know that dengue fever could have killed you potentially, but it's something that never goes away. These things mm -hmm. are viruses that get inside your cells. And when you're compromised, they come out and make you even more sick. So did any doctor back then, especially the infectious disease doctor, say to you, hey, you had dengue fever, you also had mono, maybe you have all these other crazy symptoms because your body's just shot, shot and shut down from all these things that are attacking it all the time. Yeah, so no, nobody did at all. And that was the really hard part is that even the dengue fever wasn't diagnosed until a couple of years ago. So I spent about, well, seven years there where I didn't know what was going on and nobody had even put together that I had dengue fever. They did know of the mono, but it seemed like infectious disease was not really an option to the doctors when I went in. You know, it was something that just kind of was not on the radar even it was more focused on my mental health and basically um am I psychotic and making this up for attention <laughs> yeah yeah take another anxiety pill Lexi or why didn't you fill this anxiety prescription we see from so long ago like this is why you're still having the problems yeah because you're, you're not taking your medication. And then as a patient and as a young person, you take that on so personally, right? And then you're like, okay, now I'm doubting myself. What if I am not getting better because I'm not taking these medications, but these medications don't feel good to me, but is it my fault? Is it my fault? Like, you know? It is. It's only an Exactly. You're doing all of the right things that you think you're supposed to be doing and everyone's handing it back to you on a platter of it's in your head. And mm -hmm. that's only enough. So yeah. you get back. So how you go to Australia, you're <laughs> stuck there, you're practically dying. Do you go home from Australia? Do you go to the doctor? Yeah, so I was in and out of walk-in clinics for months in Alberta. I still had BC Healthcare because I wasn't fully living in Alberta at the time. I was kind of back and forth. And I ended up working part-time with my boyfriend's company at the time. And he was just kind of like, we have these jobs, do what you can when you can. And that's what I did for the next year or so until I moved back to BC where I was feeling a bit better. I was seeing a naturopath. I was taking vitamins and doing yoga and just kind of trying to really keep my body as balanced and healthy as I could. And, and it made a difference, you know, and I, I, start, I stopped eating gluten and a few couple of like high sugar things and it helped me get back to working more and more and 
that brings us, I guess, to around 2015 when I was, I moved back to BC and again, still struggling with some symptoms, but some of the changes I've made in my life were improving and I didn't really drink much alcohol or anything anymore. Just really eating good food, taking care of my body, taking supplements. I was getting B vitamin shots and, and doing all I could. And I went back to school and was working part-time and uh, moved into a new house and was renovating. And I just ended up kind of diving right back into life with a little bit of improved health. And it wasn't even, I didn't even make it quite a year of doing all of those activities and back playing sports. And I just took on so much so fast. Cause you know, you're like, Oh, glimmer of health. And I've been feeling so horrible. Like let's do everything. <laughs> let's take on all the projects and make up for all the lost time. And boom, I, I crashed pretty hard and I kept trying to work through it. And I just ended up again in this really horrible burnt out space where um, this time it wasn't my spleen. It was my liver. I was getting some blood work done for why I was feeling a bit off and I have extremely high liver enzymes. And then I had really low functioning kidneys. So basically my detox systems were quite overwhelmed at that point. And I was very lethargic and I kept trying to work and continue until basically I was so neurologically and physically fatigued I could barely get up in the morning and I was going to school and not retaining anything. I was like collapsing at school or going to the bathroom and just like crying from pain and then like washing my face and going to sit back down into a lecture. And finally my family and my friends and even some of my teachers were like, Lexi, you you need to like go take care of of your body and for me it was really hard because I had worked so hard to get forward and I didn't want to accept that I was ill again so it took a lot of like love and support from these people to leave school to leave work and to go focus on my health again <laughs> yeah of course um, were you still with your boyfriend at this point or no? yeah he was one of the people that said like you need to stop yeah yeah his mom actually has Lyme disease so even though I didn't know at the time he was quite it works both ways. He's quite understanding of health problems, but he's also a bit jaded. He was also a bit jaded because of how it took his mom from him. And we ended up separating uh, that year that I left school and all of that. And it was just a difficult time for us both. And and we ended up separating. So it was quite the year for me. Like I, I lost my job. 
I lost my partner. I dropped out of school. I was totally incapable of hardly even taking care of myself. And it was, um, it was a big, big loss and transition year for me. A hard one to, to experience after just finally feeling like I was getting routine and life back and then having it all taken from me essentially. So everything came with a crash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Were you, were you able to be at a home where you were able, like just able to rest or no? Like, were you supported at home or was home also like you had to worry about how am I going to support myself now? I can't work as much. Are you able to rely on others? Or was that another millionth stress thrown in your face that year too? It was another million stress. So at, at first too, it was my own guilt of just not being able when I was still with my partner and not being able to provide or take care of things. And then his kind of old school mentality too is like, okay, if you're not working, like cook and clean and take care of these things. But I was physically like, there's a reason why I was at home. So now I just felt like this useless being, right? I can't financially provide. I can't physically provide. I'm so unwell. And I spent a lot of time sick in bed, feeling guilt, feeling pressure around me, which was kind of led to our separation. Um, but in that there was mold in the attic of that house and it was vented through our bedroom so the sicker I got the more time I spent in bed and the more mold exposure I had so there was like a really big physical and emotional component there. Lexi before we get into the mold and we do want to discuss that further mm -hmm. with you. I just have a comment and then a follow-up question on Emma's statements. Mm -hmm. The first one is, I am shocked that your boyfriend's mother was suffering from debilitating Lyme disease, and yet it was never thought of or discussed or mentioned that maybe you have Lyme disease, right? I mean, did that ever happen or did I miss that part? I just, that's mind-blowing because I see Lyme disease in everybody. And I'll tell you, <laughs> my family members, my friends, my colleagues, anybody who knows me, they think Lyme disease because I'm just, you know, I, I want to make sure everybody's aware of it. Right. So because she was so negatively impacted by Lyme, I'm shocked her son didn't see it in you when you had all the classic symptoms of Lyme disease. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think that he was very much in denial. You know, he did not want to accept that this person he had chosen as his partner could be facing the exact same illness as his mother so it was almost like as much as he he might have known he could not bring himself to face it or or speak it whereas she she did mention like she did mention it just around this time of around the mold when it and when I left school that's kind of when I remember it coming up and and I did go see her doctor who diagnosed her with Lyme at TCMD. I did end up going to see her and, but Lyme didn't show up at that point. So we kind of had written it off to other things, but what had happened was 
my body was so inflamed and I was so sick that the Lyme wasn't being detected through that testing because I had all of this other stuff layered on top of it. So it wasn't until later when we retested um, that things showed up. And that's when I also got blood work sent to the States. So there, there was about six months from when I thought maybe Lyme through the mother-in-law to actual diagnosis, but we had just kind of been like, oh, I guess it's not that, right? Were you still with your partner when you thought Lyme and got tested the first time or was this towards the end of your relationship? But we were still, we were still together. It was like near the end, but we were still together at that, that point. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to add to that because one of the things that I think is so interesting and we did a post on it and on our social media and Dr. Alan McDonald, who's a Lyme researcher, shared with us that there's a concept called sequestering where the Lyme bacteria itself will take the antibodies from your immune system and almost attach them to the outer surface of the bacteria. So when you do a blood test looking for antibodies to Lyme disease, it makes it almost impossible to get a positive result. And so if you have an active infection or if there are a lot of spirochetes, when they look at the serum, it's one of the reasons why these antibody tests are so inaccurate. I mean, some people say they're as inaccurate as 40%. And Dr. McDonald argues that these tests are just even worse because the Lyme bacteria is so smart that it's absorbing these antibodies so they're not detected. And on top of that, you may not be developing antibodies if you're so immune compromised as well. So I think there's so many factors as to why you had a negative test, and which is why many doctors should think clinically, you have the symptoms, let me try to treat you and see if you respond to treatment and make decisions that way, right? But the other thing I want to, I want to touch on before, um, and Emma's going to jump back in, but you talked about how you just felt so useless and you felt like, you know, you couldn't contribute anything, right? And this is something I don't think we talk about enough in the Lyme community. And I've talked about a little bit on this podcast and on in some Lyme support groups that I'm still recovering from the self-esteem and the confidence blow that came along with chronic Lyme disease from both a cognitive standpoint, from both a physical standpoint, and from you know, and, and from you know, from how my health is, because I still don't consider myself quote unquote normal, right? So we almost look at ourselves as less than in comparison to healthy people. And at this point in your in your journey, you felt like you couldn't do anything. You weren't working. Your boyfriend left you, right? And and then you kind of have to overcome those emotions. So walk us through if you're comfortable sharing how deep these feelings were, because I think these are these are feelings that we all share, and it's really hard to overcome them. And then you know what you did to kind of pull yourself up and what support you had, whether it was family or whether it was faith or what it was that helped you get through these really, really hard emotional times right before you got diagnosed. That's a, that's a big one. <laughs> yeah. To be honest, I was just limping through the days, wondering what life was for a long time and for the first about six months. And I was so ill every day just felt like a fog, a haze. And I did feel completely useless, but I also felt completely helpless in my ability to overcome that physically or emotionally. And I think it wasn't until I changed my environment. So when we did finally separate and I moved out, I actually went on welfare at the time because I was denied disability because I didn't have an actual diagnosis for anything. So 
I went on welfare, I moved houses, uh, I shared a room with a really lovely friend of mine that we reconnected in the city. And I think, I think I had to change my environment, one, for the mold, two, emotionally, to be able to change. And in DNRS, Dynamic Neural Retraining System, they talk a lot about how changing your environment can can change your life and I think for me that was the kickstarter in like reclaiming myself was moving to this new place and having this fresh start per se even though I was still experiencing a ton of symptoms it gave me a bit of life force energy and I started I'd been in counseling for years because that's how I decided to deal with the quote-unquote anxiety and depression So I continued my therapy and I would say that around that time was when I started to stumble across a bit of spiritual books and readings. And I just kind of over the next few months went through a strong transition period in this new environment where I worked every day on my mental and spiritual health because I didn't know what to do with my body. And, and then I did get the Lyme diagnosis, which gave me something that validated my, what felt like insanity of my whole life, right? I suddenly had something that explained why I was the way that I was. And even though getting diagnosed with Lyme was extremely, extremely hard, and unsettling it also gave me strength to work towards something because this work ethic was something I carried so long in my life that it was like I'm going to beat this I know what this is I'm going to take care of it I'm going to research I'm going to learn and I'm I'm going to heal and I'm going to do everything I can now that I know what this is like I'm going to get my life back and it just, to me, there was no other option. So I just put all my energy into healing myself, like mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Lexi, I do want to say, because we've talked to a lot of people in this community, and when you say there is no other option, I, I get it, I understand, and I agree. But I just want to point out how strong you are, because many people do take a second option, unfortunately, which is, I'm sick. I can't get better and I'm not going to do anything and I'm going to be bed bound the rest of my life. Right. So that is an option, but you refuse to ever even examine that or or see that potential option, which many people unfortunately take because of the fear of the nervous system dysregulation of all of the medical trauma we've gone through. People do take that route. So the fact that you, despite Mm -hmm. all of that going through all of it, right, you're crazy. It's in your head, you know, all these, all of these other things going on, the dengue fever, the EBV. I mean, you just kept fighting and fighting and fighting. So I just want to applaud you for your strength to keep fighting both emotionally, physically, and standing up for yourself, because not everybody does that, right? And you, you did say you finally get your diagnosis six months after your your first test, which was negative. Mm-hmm. At the end of that six-month window, what brought you back to a Lyme test? And what brought you back to that same facility to test again? Because you said the first time they said, oh, it's negative. You really never talked about them sharing with you that testing is very inaccurate. So how did you end up back at the same facility for the same testing six months later? 
One, I just want to say thank you so much for your sweet words. Um, that means so much. It, it's nice to have that validation. So thank you. And in regards to the testing, she did say she wasn't convinced that it wasn't Lyme, but me being so Western medicine trained, it's like, oh, it didn't come up on the test. So I don't have it. I didn't at that point quite understand how convoluted and like chaotic and unreliable Lyme testing was. So I had started on some detox drops with her for some other things that had come up and the mold I believe had come up as an issue at the time. So I started some herbal Chinese medications and was seeing her every few months. And that's when she said, I think we should test again. And I think you should put the money into this because I wasn't getting better from the treatment she was giving me. So to her, she was like, there's some, there's more, and I'm pretty sure it's Lyme. But like you said, probably because my immune system was so damaged already, just the testing is not showing because my system is completely already destroyed at this point. So, so yeah, I guess it was my not responding to the treatment that led her to be like, okay, it's worth it to spend 500 American dollars when my welfare check a month, right, is is not even $500, right? But she's like, I think you really need to do this. And I'm like, okay, you know. And did it come back? And it came back positive, yeah. Was it, did she test for co-infections too? Lyme and friends? No, just because of the financial burden at that point. We just did the Lyme at that point. Yeah, I've since been tested, yeah. Okay. So far, so you got the Lyme results. Yes. What happens now? This is where I kind of went on to my more empowering stage of my life crash of that year and the research and putting energy towards something and yeah, tons of podcasts and YouTube lectures because there's days where you can't read or can't retain things. So I watched and listened to a lot of stuff. And that's when I decided like, holy shit, I just lived so long with so much pain and so much misunderstanding and so much medical gaslighting. And I felt completely overwhelmed with sadness that so many other people experience what I went through and in this journey I'm like I have to do something to like let people know and I didn't know what it was and just over some time and chatting with a friend I was like I want to do like some awareness t-shirts or something and maybe we can make it really trendy so that it's not just like you know, that $10 t-shirt you buy to support something and never wear it again. I was like, I want people to like, really like the logo and I'm kind of artsy. So I just started drawing and thinking about things. And I went to a friend and said, like, what do you think about this? And he's like, I think you should do it. And he's like, and honestly, it will be amazing for you to have some income for your treatments too, on top of 
you know, letting other people know. So over the next year, I continued my treatments for Lyme and all of that. And on the side, when I could, I was working on building this awareness of Peril Lyme. That's awesome. That is so cool. <laughs> that is so much going on while doing <laughs> What were your treatments uh, at this time? And were, was, yeah, what were your treatments? Yeah, my primary was cemento and banderol but I was so sensitive to cemento I had to start at a quarter of a drop because basically like I had mentioned I was sick and leaving school but I developed what they called at the time idiopathic anaphylaxis which is now I know as mast cell activation disorder so I was having anaphylactic reactions to tons of foods and treatments. So Cemento was one of those ones where I was calling my doctor and being like, I'm doing one drop of this and I'm like crawling to the bathroom. My face is swelling up and like, I'm just severely struggling. And she was like, you have to do the treatment though, if you want to get better. So I would put one drop in hot water and then I'd split it out between four cups and I'd take a quarter of a drop for like, you know, and then I took half a drop and I think I got up to only five drops before I ended up switching over like a year. And you're supposed to take 30 drops like two to three times a day. <laughs> but my system just couldn't handle it. Were you feeling better as you took it or were you beginning to feel the die off? Was there, was there a point where you started feeling better on that? I don't think so. I think my baseline strength had maybe improved over like the change in environment a little bit, but I was experiencing a lot of the die off from the drops and a lot of the fatigue and nausea and I was still going to the doctors regularly trying to figure um, things out in, in the Western medical side of, of things. Cause I just, I wasn't quite sure or sold on the herbs at the time and I was doing what I could, but I kind of just clung to that. Cause that's where I was diagnosed, but I was still a bit unsure. Right. Cause I'm like, why is the medicine making me feel so much worse? And like, should it be this way? And there was still, I just never felt quite confident, I guess, in the isolated Chinese therapy treatment. So I was still kind of seeking other support. So what was your next place of support? What did you feel that worked for you next or not worked for you next? Yeah, I, I had a medical doctor who had experience with chronic illness and I started kind of seeing him to get some blood work covered because when naturopaths issue blood work, you have to pay for it. So I had this doctor who, if he issued the blood work, it would be covered. So I started seeing him and I got in touch with him to a great immunologist that was and is still helpful on the mast cell activation syndrome side of things he's actually the one who diagnosed me with that 
And then I started seeing like an environmental doctor who talks like tons about air quality, water quality, mattress quality, the mold aspect. So I started developing a team and, and having some, some more support. It was just like exhausting because my life was just medications and medical appointments and, and trying to work on this brand on the side that I didn't really have a planned launch date, right? I was just doing what I could, could with it. And I was actually seeing my environmental doctor in Edmonton when I took my dog to a dog park. And that evening I checked her for ticks and she was good. And I was going to bed later and I scratched my stomach. I was itchy and my finger hooked. Both of you put your hands on your head like, oh my God, (laughs) you know, oh yeah. So (laughs) my finger hooked. And before I even lifted my shirt, I'm like, I knew, I knew it was a tick. And I lifted up my shirt and looked at my belly and was just like, (sighs) and um, I know you're supposed to properly extract them. I panicked. I did not. I grabbed that thing and ripped it out. I still have a scar on my stomach from it, but I was just like, get this thing freaking off of me. Totally understandable though, Lexi, right? I mean, you, you, I mean, look, you just got diagnosed with Lyme disease. You've been sick your whole life and then you have another tick bite, which you know can give you more Lyme and make you even sicker with more strains of Lyme and possibly other things. So most people do react the way you did, unfortunately, when they're bit <laughs> again and they realize how severe a tick bite can be. So I do want to ask you though, before we, before we can't even talk about this bite, which is wild, when you were seeing these two other doctors, the environmental doctor about, you know, air quality, mattress, things like that, and also the doctor for MCAS, were they giving you anything specifically to treat the symptoms or the root causes that helped you feel better that you can share with our listeners? Were they giving me which, sorry? Anything specific. So were they giving you any sort of any sort of herbal, natural, or pharmaceutical treatments that were helping you feel better from the MCAS sim- symptoms or any tips or tricks environmentally with air quality and mattress and things like that that you can share with our listeners that helped you in whether it be one symptom, many symptoms, or none, right? Just curious what Mm -hmm. what tips you can share with our listeners about what you've learned from those two doctors. Yes, absolutely. So the environmental doctor really got me away from all chemicals, including like perfumes, makeup, house cleaners, detergents, um, anything that you wear all the time, like clothes, especially anything you're in contact with all the time is the most important. So your clothes and your bedding, having hypoallergenic, non-toxic detergents, extremely important. Your bedding and your pillows about how they have to be like air, uh, what's the word, gassed? Like my, my brain fog is kicking. Oh, when um, so when you buy them and they have all the chemicals and you have to like let it let it almost air out, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a term for it. I can't think of it right now, but yeah, it, it has to air out and off gas, off gas. That's off the gas. one. Yeah. Off gas. I knew it would come. Um, yeah, and just how even if you use a harsh cleaner on your floor, they've studied that for over six weeks that chemical you breathe in and it's toxic so 
I really have been very careful with the clothing, the detergents. And then he also said the air that you breathe and the water that you drink are two of the things you consume the most in a day. So your environment has to have as pure of air as possible and your water needs to be as clean as possible because that is like the foundation of your body. And then third would be all the things that are on you and you're exposed to in a day. So I put a filter in my vehicle at the time to help with VOCs. I started wearing a mask in certain situations that had activated charcoal filters. I got room air purifiers. Uh, I don't drink anything from plastic or I do a little bit now. I'm like not as uptight. And sometimes you drink out of a, a water bottle, but at the time I switched everything to glass and like what, high Lexi, quality were you, water. Were you drinking tap water? Because Dr. Jess, we interviewed her and she was very kind, but I drink tap water and she was like I said, she was extremely nice, but she cautioned me very greatly about using tap water to drink because it's really, really bad for us. And I have some friends that call it infertility water as well. So I'm just curious what your views are on, you know, tap water versus filtered water versus, you know, distilled water and all the different types of water we can drink. Yeah. So he said the best was reverse osmosis water remineralized. So um, I do drink tap water now, but where I live, it comes from a river and it's very mildly chlorinated, like it's mountain runoff and it's very, very mildly chlorinated and it goes through um, in our house a, a filter before. So it's like it's tap water, but it's not tap water. But when I was in the city, I bought I bought bottled water and we used glass um, Sometimes we had plastic, but I tried to use glass as much as possible. Yeah, but he really stressed to me the importance of detoxifying with high quality water. Otherwise, you're not actually truly detoxifying because of the chemicals and the minerals or metals in the water, which I'm sorry if you drink tap water to say that, but it's, um, this is tap yeah. water, Lexi. Yeah. And so um, uh, just so you know, I, I still drink tap water and I know I should not be, but it's just convenient and I, I need to change that. So thank you for the reminder. Yeah. <laughs> but, so on that note though, so obviously that was a huge amount of information. It's extremely valuable and a, a really mm -hmm. stern reminder for myself, I feel like. But talk to us about the MCAS, right? Because mm -hmm. MCAS is extremely common where people have all these inflammatory responses, mast cell activation syndrome. It causes body pain. It causes allergies to a ton of things, both, you know, smells and foods and sensitivities. What were you doing with this MCAS specialist to help all of your MCAS symptoms? Any, anything specific you can share with our listeners in that regard to give them some guidance with MCAS? Yeah, so it took a little bit to to fully get that diagnosis because we had to rule out a bunch of other things because that's how Western medicine seems to work. And I was on ranitidine and Claritin for a while, which are prescription medications, H1 and H2 blockers. And I had emergency prescription for hydroxyzine, which I was trying to use daily for a while, but I was, I was again, losing who I was because of the fatigue and dizziness and dissociation from that. So 
I managed with the Claritin and Ranitidine for a while. And then I tried chromul sodium chrom chromulin or chromulate. And then I tried Zolaire, which is an injection for some people works extremely well. And for me, I didn't notice a huge change. And it is also like several thousand dollars a month. So I ended up uh, one, not really being able to afford it long term. And two, because I didn't have like significant, amazing results, it wasn't something. It was kind of one of those things like you give it six months and spend money you don't have and it not work or do you just kind of cut your losses and say we tried it once and you know it's not in the cards right now so those are some pretty um, common I think approaches of different types for mast cell but what I ended up doing was slowly switching over to quercetin and vitamin c and I still take exceptionally high doses of quercetin to this day like my pills are 500 milligrams and I take between four and six before every meal in order to manage my mast cells so it's a very expensive approach but it it significantly has helped my mast cell symptoms and has allowed me to eat food and tolerate a little bit more chemical better like I used to just pass out if I had was exposed to a perfume or a chemical and now I might get dizzy or a headache. So it, it really is helping and it doesn't give me the fatigue that uh, the other types of histamine blockers have. And Lexi, I, I just promised Emma that I was done, but I have to ask this question. So just, just for our listeners, we have a chat going, a private chat, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm done. And then I jump in. But the quercetin is, I think, something you can buy online. It's a supplement you can go on and buy from a variety of reputable sources, right? So you don't need the Lyme litter doctor. So somebody suffering from MCAS, money is an issue. They can go on and look up, I mean, vitamin C, they can get liposomal vitamin C and possibly some quercetin from a, from a reputable source and source it themselves at something that's not a crazy amount of money to help with their MCAS, right? Is that something you agree with if somebody's listening and is looking for MCAS help? Yes, absolutely. I can also even share the brand because I found different brands have different um, effects on me and I prefer AOR. It's usually a purple bottle quercetin and taking the vitamin C with it enhances the effect of the quercetin. And I will also just mention too, there is a brand called Neuroprotect that has lutein and root rutin and luteolin and quercetin, which are also very studied herbs to help with mast cell, which I have been on and off in the past. Um, but it's one that's a little bit harder to access, but is also very helpful and something that you can buy without a prescription. Wow, so your mast cell was it surprising when you found out that a lot of your symptoms were being caused by histamine, by histamine? I know for me, I was like, what? Yeah, very. I still feel like 
even though I've been diagnosed with that for five or so years now, I still feel sometimes I read things and I'm like, oh, that's histamine too. Oh my goodness. Like, I still feel like I learn so much all the time about how that affects like your, all your systems. Yeah. Yeah. And are you being treated for Lyme specifically, or are you just going after histamine at this point? I took a break from treatment a couple years ago now. And just this year, I started on peptides because basically what I was finding was regardless of how low of dose of any Lyme treatment I went on, it was flaring my mast cell so severely that I couldn't function. And then the more drops you take or the more treatment you take, the higher the detox and the more the mast cell. And I just was in this constant battle of getting sicker and sicker by trying to get better. And I would go on breaks and I'd stop and I'd start and I'd stop and I'd start because it'd get to a point where I'd be hospitalized sick and then I'd have to take a break or, you know, like, or you spend time in a hospital and you just don't have all your supplements and they don't want to give you your supplements, you know? So I would just get to a point where I couldn't function. And I think this is where the spiritual emotional journey come into that a couple of years ago, I was in this treatment, full body hives. I was not, I was sleeping maybe two hours a night because I was having so much hives and so many seizures that I developed after the second tick bite. And the more, the more inflammation I carry, the more seizures I have and the more inflammation I have, the worse the mast cell was. So I was just completely felt like I was losing my mind. My whole body was itchy. I hadn't slept in weeks with this treatment. And I finally just had this, like, I was having panic attacks and anxiety from extreme neurological inflammation. And I literally went in like late in the snow in the middle of winter, just to calm down my hives and cool my brain. It was so hot. Like just, I felt like I couldn't escape the heat of the inflammation. And I'm out there laying there at like three in the morning in the winter in the snow. And I'm like, no wonder they all think I'm crazy. Cause like, I feel so crazy right now. And I just kind of had this conversation with God or spirit or source, if you will. However, you, you relate to a greater power if you believe in that. But I just decided in that moment, like, no more, no more killing myself, trying to get better. And I came back from that treatment to my team and I told them all until we can find a way for me to do treatment that doesn't make me feel this way or almost die. I am not doing treatment. So we changed my whole treatment routine to supportive managing the mast cell opening the detox pathways very slowly not even detoxing just getting things open and working and strengthening the body and that's what I did for a year until this last year I started I started some peptides very very low I've only done one round in this whole year so that's kind of where I'm at in in treatment now is just trying a different way of easing 
into it. And I really like the concept of peptides because it's encouraging your body to treat the virus and the bacterial with its own immune system instead of like bringing this outside thing that causes extreme die-off and inflammation. So I'm hoping that with this treatment, it won't overwhelm my body the same way because I'm hoping my body's only going to produce exactly what it needs, not too much or too little. Now, you said earlier you did wind up getting co-infections later on. Yeah. Yeah, so I only tested for Lyme the first time, right? We only did the one test. So I don't know after the second bite how much I had before and what was new, but I did develop, I had Rocky Mountain spotted fever, Babesia, Rickettsia, Bartonella, and then Powassan virus, which was the encephalitis seizure causing virus which again very few percentage of people have they also said I was lucky to have survived that one because it has a really high fatality rate and I remember my immunologist like sitting down with me and like looking at all the infections and and he's like I know Lexi that like sometimes you despise your body and you resent like everything you've been through but he's like looking at all of this and like talking to you right now he's like I just want to say I'm I feel very fortunate that you're with us and he's like I hope that you can have some appreciation for your body for fighting this for you and like allowing you to be here because he said most people don't live through this without like proper medical care and you have so that was like a really profound moment for me And that was a medical doctor that told you that? Yes, he's a medical doctor, but he's very, very special in the fact that he's progressive and like, yeah, he's one of a kind. Like, (laughs) that must have felt so validating, though. And so, like, after, especially from the dang fever, like, and then, wow, wow. So, okay, so do you think after that second bite, you got the Pawasin? Am I saying that right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure because I didn't, I had neurological issues prior, but I didn't develop the seizures until a few months after that, um, that second tick bite. And that's when like life drastically, it was about six months later when they started becoming extremely dominant. And I did have a bone marrow biopsy and get some nerve damage, which I think also contributed to the neurological problems like that stress and that trauma of the freezing not working but I also believe the Powassan virus is just so neurological that between the two of them I just I went into a very 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 bad state like worse yeah like we've been through a lot of my journey but that's not even the worst of it. <laughs> so that was when you were like I'm done. I'm not trying to, I, I, why no, no more pain, trying to get rid of the pain. Sorry, say that again. That was when it was like, no more pain, trying to get rid of my pain. This isn't working. And you started peptides. Like, no, I, no, no, that was like, 
three or four years later. Oh, wow. Um, so how did you manage from the Powassan? Yeah, so the Powassan was in 2017. And I launched the brand, my brand uh, a few months later and started the awareness apparel line. And again, I found myself in this position where I could barely walk from pain and was like passing out all the time, but I'm like pressing t-shirts and like shipping things and like managing <laughs> social media and a blog and just back into it and doing the best that I could. I was very lucky. I had a lot of support at the time, like with family and friends that helped me get through that. But I ended up having to move home and be with my parents I got in a couple car accidents from one after an osteo appointment and one I just I was just so unwell and like not respond like I couldn't react in situations where I needed to quickly so I ended up moving home and and quitting driving and um kind of sat down with my family and was like what do we do because the treatment that I have been on isn't enough and the seizures were getting worse and worse I'm assuming with the Powassan um, and all of everything I had going on like I was having hours of seizures each day they weren't like minutes they were hours and it was just so much that we decided to have a fundraiser and try and seek um, like a, a more long-term clinic in, in the States. And, and we went and did that and I got stem cells and, and stuff. And we thought that that would be, I talked at the beginning of the podcast about how it's like the next thing and the next thing. And, and we thought, okay, now that we can go to this clinic, I'll get better and I got worse yeah so what happened was I believe with my immunologist we talked that at the clinic they didn't immunosuppress me before giving stem cells and because I have mast cell activation disorder which the clinic knew and was a worry of mine at the time like you know I'm like I have a huge history of not being able to do treatment because mast cell how will you be different you know so we go in and we get the stem cells and what happened was because they didn't immune suppress me, my body almost was trying to reject the cells, but you can't reject the stem cells. And in fact, they, they exponentially duplicate each day for 18 months, they start to work in your body. So now, instead of however many cells in your body that you have with mast cell, I just put in like a bajillion more so I ended up going to the clinic walking and I left in a wheelchair and I left and the next like six months of my life were probably the hardest because I couldn't hardly roll over in bed without having a seizure my like autonomic nervous system was so traumatized the mast cell the inflammation everything was so so high Everything, every tiny little bit of progress that you had made, these people. Yeah. Yeah. It How was, long were you at the clinic? 
it was supposed to be a two-week thing and I think I was there for five like even getting through all the IVs each day like I was passing out in them I was having seizures I was having low oxygen drops I was having tachycardia uh like I was having major major issues through the whole thing but you know I was committed to healing like I said and and I thought that's what I had to do and go through to get better so so I did it and uh, I don't know if like the stem cells did some healing in in the background but on the surface it was just like this living nightmare where for about a year or two after I didn't really hardly ever leave my house because even the vibrations from a car ride would trigger a seizure after so long like I my system was completely completely destroyed you go back on um yeah and at that point I was taking quercetin but I didn't realize how much I could take of it. So over the next few years, I upped my dose a lot. But at that point, I, I didn't know other than I knew that when I had anaphylactic reactions, that when I took Benadryl, for some reason, my seizures would be a little bit less. But yeah, I just spent like every day in bed. When I could, I would try and look up seizures and look up things but it was probably the hardest thing of my life and and my family's life because I couldn't I couldn't walk anymore I couldn't hardly hold a conversation for 10 minutes I I just fainted all the time I'd had seizures all the time and and yeah it was it was that point where that was the closest to like giving up in my journey because I felt like I put in so much work over the years and done everything that I could. And, you know, this treatment was supposed to be the thing. And, and here I am worse than I ever have been. And you're just stuck in bed with your thoughts all day, wondering like, how can I get out of this? Or, or can I even more? Like I started to lose so much faith. So, were you able to, I mean, you must um, find a doctor or were you talking to your immunologist at that point? The people that had found your Lyme, did you reach back out to them or did you go a different route? Yeah, I worked a lot with the clinic that did the stem cells initially and was trying to figure it out with them but there was not a lot of responsibility there. And like the clinic since shut down because I wasn't the only one, even though it was supposed to be like a well-studied clinic that originated in Germany that opened up in the States and, but it has since shut down. And Lexi, can you share the name of the clinic? Are you comfortable sharing the name? Yeah, it was called Infusio. Yeah, and Fusio, yeah. and that was in California, right? The one that you went to, I yeah, yeah. And they and they they have shut down, I believe, right? They and I know there's a lot of controversy around them as well with their stem cells and a lot of other horror stories too for people that that you know I think stem cells work for some people and other people 
that have histamine issues or M- MCAS issues, right? We've heard this from a wide variety of doctors on our podcast that stem cells aren't for everybody. And I'm sorry mm. that they didn't do their due diligence and really look at you as a person and an individual before giving you stem cells, because that inflammation and those histamines definitely, for sure, I believe, triggered your seizures and a lot of other downward spiraling symptoms that made it even harder for you to, to claw back from. So I'm sorry for that. And thank you. Mm. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It, it was something that was very frustrating because it was the, the headline of my approach to the clinic was I have mast cell activation syndrome and it's made my treatments very difficult. How is your clinic different? You know, like I have direct emails that was like, are you sure you, you can work with me? And they're like, yes, 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 absolutely. So you're right in the sense where I did feel at the end of that, like, they didn't have my best interests in mind or me as a person. It was more of like a business standpoint and it it was really heartbreaking more than it, like the experience of after, right. But it's just like, you put your hands and everything you have, literally every dollar, every resource, like my parents taking time off work to take me down there. Like the whole community put everything for me to have that and this trust and, and instead to end off worse than, than before. It's just like, how do you, how do you recover from that? Honestly. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So you go back home and how do you start improving? When do you start improving? Yeah, so this is kind of like the the dark part of my story where, like I said, I was very close to like giving up, but like at that point having almost suicidal thoughts, but also being so helpless that I was like, I can't even like do anything at all. So I just laid there, you know, and and tried to like past the time and I ended up seeing a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with conversion disorder and I and oh because I ended can, up in can, the hospital Lexi can you explain what that is I'm sorry conversion disorder just for our listeners for my understanding conversion disorder is a severe mental emotional illness that is not represented through emotions but that is then I guess essentially converted into a movement disorder so untreated mental stress becomes a movement disorder but this sounds like to me them saying you're psychologically unwell and therefore it's presenting itself in physical symptoms because we don't really know what's going on. That's going to be our cop-out answer for you. There's another, another example of saying it's all in your head, right? And, and when you said that right away, I'm like, really? Come on. You have Lyme, Babesia, <laughs> Bartonella, Powelson virus, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, Dengue fever. you right. You have, you have Epstein-Barr virus in you and they're saying it's all in your head again. It just makes me crazy to hear that. So I'm sorry. I just, just had to share that with you. Thank you. Yeah, and I think this is the really, really sad part in my journey is that I was so ill and so desperate and like I've done years of treatment and none of it's worked and I haven't responded like the typical 
Limey has, right? Like I have friends at this point or my ex-mother-in-law, like they all respond one way and I respond so different or have such a hard time and this treatment not working and me not understanding that I, I was like, okay, so I have conversion disorder and my whole life is a lie now like this maybe this isn't lie maybe I am crazy and I was so unwell that I almost started to believe that because in some piece of me I felt like if I accept that I'm just mentally unwell maybe there's a chance that I can get better so I was constantly split between like I have Lyme disease and like I want them to like understand that this is more than mental health but then I also now had this like extreme doubt in me and and like maybe I am crazy so I ended up in the hospital because the seizures were sometimes like we're looking at five plus hours a day of of convulsions and the mental and physical where like I really didn't know who I was or what was going on half the time, just from like the stress, let alone the physical happenings inside my body. And then the doctors saying that it's all in your head. So I ended up getting released from the hospital with some antidepressants again. And this time I took them, but I was throwing up. They tried me on another kind. I was throwing up. So now my body is physically rejecting these antidepressants. Like it's not from a spiritual standpoint right now. I'm like, okay, like my body's telling me this is not the problem. But in the, in the moment, I'm like, let me try them again. Let me try them again. If this is what I need to heal, like I'm so desperate for relief, like I'll take it. And because I ended up being treatment resistant with conversion disorder, they referred me to a neuropsychiatric ward in Vancouver, BC, where I spent almost a month and they wanted to undergo electric convulsion therapy, otherwise known as ECT for treatment resistant conversion disorder and I spent a month in that facility being gaslit every day by a very aggressive um very aggressive doctor he actually treated the psychiatric and the neuropsych ward and he treated everyone quite horribly as psychiatric patients and even though I had brain lesions show up on my MRIs. I had micro hemorrhages. I have a six millimeter cyst. They continued to treat me like a psych patient and refused to admit that I had any type of physical problem. And by the way, Lexi, those things can be attributed to Lyme disease as well. I mean, recent research as, as recent as this last year, but dating back to many years ago, have proven the connection between masses in your brain and Lyme disease. And tumors and all kinds, and even your liver issues you described earlier on in this podcast, everything you're describing, all of your physical presentations, your seizures, your histamines are all connected to Lyme and tick-borne illness, but they're refusing to look at them and they're treating you as a crazy person, which is just 
as you're describing this, I'm like, what are we in 1920? This is like a scene out of a 1920s movie I'm hearing right now. And this is like modern world craziness that we're hearing. So I'm so sorry that you had to go through all that. Thank you. Yeah, it was really bizarre because I am like quite such a strong willed person and I had fought so hard, you know, over the years to be like, there's more to my story. Like there's more than anxiety. There's more. But after just like fighting and giving everything you had, it's just like you're so worn out and you're like, maybe, maybe I have it all wrong. Maybe, maybe, you know, it's just like it just finally wore on me. And you're right, like in that facility, I wasn't allowed a phone or a computer or anything. My room was completely blank. Like if I was in pain, they wouldn't give me pain medication because they thought I was psychological. Right. And I'm, I'm having severe neurological spinal pain from all these seizures and convulsions and inflammation, and they would refuse pain medication. And I'm just laying there, like watching the clock every day being told that I'm crazy and that like I need to undergo this shock therapy multiple times a week for six months if I ever want to get better and I literally felt like you said like from hundreds of years ago like a German like war patient experiment at one point and it was just like and still is the hardest part of my journey. One that I let myself get there, but two that like our system still allows this. And like this type of treatment is considered okay and necessary. Like it was more traumatic than like Lyme disease itself, which if anyone has had Lyme disease, they know there's a million traumas associated there. But I did feel like I was back in some like horrific, movie that it's like how is this the 2000s you know Lexi thank god you got out of there and you moved on and put that behind you right Mm -hmm. but I I know I do want to ask you is this around the time because a couple of things from your pre-interview questionnaire that I wanted to make sure we touched on was your use of combo and I you know ayahuasca and also the free medica wave device so is this, was that earlier on? Was this around this time? I don't want to miss those key items there because those are things we get asked often about uh, at Tick Boot Camp. Yeah, so they came after. I would say, well, I thought that I was on like a spiritual path where earlier I mentioned a few times, it wasn't until I was about to go under ECT because they had convinced me like that was what I needed and they were putting the gas over my mouth and I would say this was like my come to God moment where I felt everything in my body scream no and I knew I had to leave like everything I could do to leave that facility right away And it was in the months after that where I dove a lot deeper into my spiritual journey and probably about a year later where I decided to do ayahuasca and and then try Cambo and work on microdosing psilocybin along with programs like DNRS and um, just really trying to 
heal mentally and physically, but in ways that resonated with me and felt good in my body and really trying to take back my power as a person and accept that I had illness that was causing my symptoms. I didn't have mental illness that was causing my symptoms. Wow, okay. Where did you do ayahuasca at home? I did it at a nearby town. Um, here I did a women's retreat and I hired a sober um, woman to sit with me who is now a friend of mine in just in case I needed to go to the hospital, just in case I had any adverse reactions. And, you know, I was very, very, very safe about it and I took a little bit of quercetin before the ceremony and yeah and did you feel that it showed you a lot of things from your past that were like deeply wrong to you or not necessarily that yeah it showed me a little bit but more so I felt like ayahuasca I just grieved I grieved my whole life I felt like I grieved lifetimes I cried all night I just released everything from the medical trauma you know to the the friends and relationships and all the losses along the way and it was one of the hardest treatments I've done to sit with myself for two nights in that space and go through the physical and emotional but I did leave it feeling lighter and my nervous system felt calmer for the first time in years. And about six months after ayahuasca, I was almost completely out of my wheelchair. So as I'm like, if you feel called, I think it is important. I also know it's not for everyone. But for me, I do believe that it was a necessary component in my healing. And it actually had come up uh, shamanism in some meditations I had done when I'm asking for support, asking what I need to do to heal. And, and I believe ayahuasca and both microdosing peptides with the brain training is like some of the profound neurological healings that I've had or because of those two medicines. Lexi, I want to ask a question on this because a lot of this stuff is, it just seems really scary. And I'm not going to lie. I've thought about combo and I thought about things like this, but it just freaks me out. I'm somebody <laughs> who is like, you know, I don't drink alcohol, but most a lot of people don't, right? Never smoked a cigarette in my life. I was just never into partying and drugs. So when I hear things mm -hmm. like, you know, microdosing, that's a psychedelic, right? It's something that can make you sort of hallucinate, right? It puts, mm -hmm. it, it, it's a hallucinogenic, I'm, I said that wrong, but you know, you can hallucinate from it. The combo is literally frog poison that makes you hallucinate <laughs> and people have some wild trips on combo. It's poison, right? But it's a, it's a tool that's used to help reset your nervous system, bring out the trauma and also help boost your immune system and help your body heal. So it's, it's bolstering your system to heal. And it's also helping you address emotional trauma. So it's a twofold approach. And that's why I think it's so successful for so many people, mm -hmm. but help us get over the, the fear Frank, that I have, right. The hurdle of, 
oh my goodness, I'm not injecting myself with frog poison. I'm not getting high off mushrooms. I'm not like, right. It's scary. So <laughs> yeah. like, like walk us through the, the you know, the, the fear and, and then what the experience is like. And obviously it was really helpful. I mean, it got you out of a wheelchair, right? So walk us through that barrier a little bit, break down the mm-hmm. walls to make this more approachable for everybody listening to this podcast. Yeah. So I started with the microdosing piece because I was not someone who was experienced with drugs or hallucinogenics before that wasn't part of, you know, my, my college experimentation. So I also was very, very um, reluctant and nervous. I had a friend who kind of walked me through the, the microdosing and assured me that I wouldn't hallucinate or anything at such a small dose. And they were in capsules So it wasn't like eating a mushroom and not knowing how much it was like a tiny amount in a capsule. So one, I had great support. And two, the first time I did it, I actually sat with the bottle for probably two weeks, left it by my nightstand before I ever, ever tried to take it. And I decided to take it one night and I just like, had a fuzzy blanket with me, you know, and just was really almost in a meditative state and just wanted to be really in tune with how my body received it. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, just having that support and doing it in a really safe environment. And then I just got like a little bit smiley with it. And I, I just felt a little bit more open to concepts and ideas and healing and after I started to continue microdosing, I just gained confidence in the medicine. And then I started seeing the results in my nervous system and with the seizures and just my neurological function improving as well. So I just gained confidence, I think, in the medicine slowly, but absolutely, I was very afraid going in. And I think that's the part where I say, It's not for everyone, but you have to trust your body. You have to sit with the medicine. You have to say like, is this for me or is this for me right now? Because sometimes something can be for us, but maybe we're not in the headspace that night for it. And just being really in touch with your yourself and your body before you take any supplement or medication, whether it's a psychedelic or not, I would say. And, and ayahuasca was the same for me. I actually didn't research ayahuasca as much as I did um, psilocybin, but I can tell you, I had this like overwhelming feeling in my body where I was like, I think I might want to do this. And I randomly got this email about someone who knew it and I didn't even ask for it. And then there was a cancellation and I got in within like, three weeks and it was super affordable and it just everything just unfolded for me that I couldn't help but not trust at that point because it was just like other treatments had been so hard and everything's like fight 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 work 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 you know and this was just like this blossoming flower that's like come let us take care of you like this is going to help you this is the right time and I just went in with this like big open heart and trust and of course I had fear I was like also very afraid but my trust was greater than my fear because of how 
resonant it felt in my body. Lexi, I do want to add that, you know, for people that are listening and considering this, Johns Hopkins University is currently doing a study to use psilocybin as a potential treatment for chronic Lyme disease. And they're actually accepting applicants right now as we speak. So if people are listening to this podcast, they can go and I think it's hot. Uh, let me pull up the website, hopkinspsychedelic.org slash Lyme. And you can apply to be a part of this study to test out psilocybin as a potential treatment for chronic Lyme to get you over that hurdle, not only from a nervous system standpoint, but also to aid and assist in your body's healing from Lyme as well. So this is something that's not some woo woo crazy thing. This Mm -hmm. is being studied by major reputable universities in a way where they're recruiting people to participate in these studies, right? So I'm just thankful that you're sharing this because, Mm -hmm. you know, I I know Rich and I, I think Emma does as well. We really believe that there's strong potential here for psilocybin and these and microdosing to help people with chronic Lyme. So this is something that we are personally passionate about. So thank you for sharing this. Yeah, you're welcome. Absolutely. It it is one of those things where it feels like, do I share this or not? But then you're like, because I've had such profound results, it's it has to be shared, you know, and I I really, really hope that one day I'm well enough too and I can help other people, whether it's emotionally or physically with a medicine like psilocybin in small amounts transform their lives because of how much it's helped me. You can't help but not want to share that with other people or help facilitate that because when you've gone through what I've gone through or other people have gone through and you've just had those moments where there's literally nothing in the healthcare system that can help you and they just write you off. Like they literally told me when I was in a wheelchair I could maybe get 10% better with a stroke rehabilitation clinic, but that essentially I was, I had a traumatic brain injury from infection and there was that, there was no recovery beyond that maybe 10%. So for me now with this other medicine and like, I'm not running by any means, but I'm doing yoga and I'm walking, I can do really short hikes some days, you know, and I'm, I'm not completely independent but I can do so much more and to like be able to talk to you guys for this long it's like it has to be shared people have to know that there is more out there and that you're not limited or trapped or stuck where you are like I believe that there is always something more and I still have seizures and I still am challenged daily by this illness, but I continue to believe that there's healing out there for me and there's always going to be more and new medicine. And if there's something that I can share with the listeners or anyone who's really in those dark places, it's, it sounds cliche, but don't give up because there is always something more. We just don't always know what it is yet. I'm going to jump in with one of my final statement. So Emma knows that I'm, I'm not going to talk anymore after this, right? Because I know we've had you on. And, and look, contextually, you were having five-hour-long seizures. You were wheelchair-bound. I mean, the progress you've made when they told you you couldn't improve is, is amazing. And we believe that the healing is out there for you as well. And you're going to continue to heal more and more and more. And you're going to be a model. And you're going to be a teacher and a resource to the Lyme community. And we're so excited to have you on this podcast, Lexi, because... We can't wait to see you continue to heal and then change the lives of so many people who are suffering and are being told they can't get better. But 
the few last things I want to touch on before I stop talking altogether and Emma will finish you up with this podcast is <laughs> we know from your pre-interview questionnaire, you also talked about the free medical wave one device and rife and also light therapy were any you know light therapy and laser laser treatments and red light treatments were any of those helpful just noteworthy for our listeners that were helpful in helping you with any symptoms or do you feel in your healing journey because we hear about rife often we hear about you know light therapy and laser ther- laser treatments and the free medical wave one device which is used by yolanda hadid and she said it helped her significantly what were your experiences with these things Yeah, so what I love about the energy treatments is they don't trigger mast cell in the same way. So they trigger mast cell in the same way that when they cause detox, you can have a bit of a reaction, but they don't cause that reaction to the actual medication or supplement, like the root of it. So I do quite like the energy treatments for that. And I have found them very powerful. In fact, for me, again, it was too powerful. So the Frey Medica, even at their lowest intensity, was too extreme for the fragile state of my body. Um, I actually seen it on my shelf the other day and I was like, oh, I wonder if I could try that again. You know, it's kind of resurfacing in the back of my mind. But I I do really believe and, and think that those tools are powerful and the fact that I've had such adverse reactions to them or strong detox or inflammatory responses to me shows me that they really do have some strong healing capabilities. It's just, again, is it the right place and the right time for me personally right now? And that's, I think the hardest part of the Lyme journey is yes, this might be a great tool. Is it a great tool for me? And is it a great tool for me right now? I don't know if that answers your question or if I missed a piece there. <laughs> I think it was good. It was <laughs> um, are you, can I ask where you are now with Lyme? Like, are you treating now, not treating now, alternatively? Yeah, so my primary focus is still on the building and strengthening of my body physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I did do a round of peptides this winter that were targeted on building the immune system to fight the infections and viruses within my body. And I did really, really well for that six weeks and I felt stronger, but I got that same peptide a couple of weeks ago. And after my first week of it, I did really, really, really poorly. So I was developing more seizures, more weakness, and I was fainting quite often. And just my triggers that I've done some great healing on having more resilience had not so much resilience. So I'm at that point where I'm going to maybe try and start again at a lower dose and see how I do. But again, it's just, is it not the right time for me? right now or why did it work then and it's not working now so I'm at a bit of a crossroads again in my journey where I haven't restarted I took like I stopped after that first week and you know you're just very humbled again continuously by the journey of the progress of ups and downs and I'm just still sitting with it to decide my next steps if I try it again or if I just 
at a lower dose or if I take a break. So I'm still building my body and I'm on certain like immune medications and adrenal supports and I get the Myers IVs and stuff. But in terms of treating Lyme itself, the peptides is what I'm trying right now. And that is kind of even uh, being reconsidered at this moment because of how adverse I have responded this past month. Sorry about that, first of all. I know how frustrating <laughs> that is. Thank you. It's, it's frustrating, but I'm also used to it, right? So there's like that one day where you're like, oh, this sucks. Like, I thought this was going to make me feel better. Now I feel worse. Oh. And then you're like, okay, so now what? Right now, what yeah, do I back do? Again. Yep. This, ha- this happens. What do we do now? Exactly. We can do this. <laughs> yeah. um, for your awareness clothing, have you, have, are you still doing that? So the short answer is no, but I've, I've been working on making it more streamlined where instead of myself doing the clothing, I'll, I'm looking at having a manufacturer do it because it became too much physically for me to do. So I'm hoping to relaunch this fall with that in a in a different way a more sustainable for my wellness way <laughs> perfect yeah yeah so would you say like reflecting on everything how now if nothing else you feel like your health is in your own hands yeah yeah i think it's always in my own hands now and that I get to choose what I do with what I'm given but it's completely out of my hands in the sense that I don't know any day what I'm being given yeah yeah Yeah. the challenge but Mm -hmm. I mean I think you're doing amazing thank you (laughs) (laughs) it's been a it's been interesting I haven't been through my journey like start to finish for a very long time so I thank you guys for having me and for also allowing me the opportunity in a safe space to share and reflect and be heard and supported and just experience my journey again for for myself and I am not often proud of myself but hearing myself speak to you and hear back from you I'm like wow okay I've been through some stuff and I'm still here and that's that's such a gift you know to be able to to be here and to have this conversation with you guys so and just your vulnerability is going to Mm. help so many people Mm. and helping you in this moment it's it's amazing thank you for coming on and thank you for sharing yourself and your story with everybody because it's empowering Mm. so I hope you feel empowered listening to it because I feel empowered oh good thank you yeah I I really hope that that it helps someone because no that's why we're here I it is hard to to share and to go through the motions but I absolutely hope that I could help someone Lexi, this is going to help many someones. I guarantee you, you've already helped me. I'm sitting here, Rich is away. I want to tell you, and I want to tell everybody listening, Rich is away at a conference right now. 
for the entire week and I've been texting him and he keeps responding. I have such FOMO. I have such FOMO. I have such FOMO because <laughs> fear of missing out because how of how brilliant you are, Lexi. And I'm just sitting here. I'm like, I didn't have to say a word. Emma has been the best co-host ever. And you are just brilliant, Lexi. The two of you are just geniuses and, and being able to be witness to this and learn from you has been such a blessing. So Lexi, thank you for sharing your story. Emma, thank you for jo- joining and co-hosting with us. And, and we can't thank you both enough for being a part of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Lexi Zar. To all our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Lexi, you can find her on LinkedIn. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 300 episodes, subscribe to our email list or share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.